Hello, Rebecca Adil here. Um, just another one of my weekly messages to you guys. Um, firstly, to thank you for all of the amazing reviews that you've been leaving. Honestly, it's so heartwarming and encouraging. And I'm just so pleased that people are actually listening to the podcast and enjoying it. So if you can keep doing that, that would be fantastic. Also, as I've said before, we do have a Patreon account, www.patreon.com forward slash killing underscore time. Um, do join us. There's lots of extra content there. We've got mini interviews, well, extra bits of interviews. We've got blogs and all of that kind of stuff. Also, yes, tell your friends, family, anyone else that likes listening to podcasts because podcasts live and die on word of mouth. So if you can shout about it and tell lots of people then hopefully we can um, keep going for a lot longer um anyway i've kept you for long enough you want to listen to the content so on with the show welcome to killing time the podcast that investigates the darkest moments of our past to shine a light on wider histories i'm rebecca radiel and i'll be your guide sit back relax and listen as we delve into episode 11 virgin sacrifice in the ancient world According to ancient Greek myth, the success of the legendary Siege of Troy depended upon the blood of an innocent. As the commander of the Greek forces, Agamemnon, prepared to depart for Troy, he incurred the wrath of the goddess Artemis and was plagued with bad weather. A prophet advised him that the only way to appease the goddess would be for Agamemnon to offer up his own daughter, Iphigenia, as a sacrifice. This he did. It's a disturbing story, but over the past few decades, archaeologists have found troubling evidence that human sacrifice was not simply confined to myth. In 2007, researchers at the site of ancient Cydonia in Crete discovered among the sacrificial bones of animals the mutilated skull of a young girl. of taking another human being's life as a sacrifice runs so contrary to modern morality. Yet there is an abundance of examples of humans being sacrificed to the gods in ancient literature, from Iphigenia to Andromeda. To explore this dark chapter of history and the wider world of ancient Greece, I speak to historian, broadcaster and best-selling author Professor Bettany Hughes. Bethany Hughes, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I'm really, really excited to have you here because unlike most of the podcasts, this is actually a very timely one because you have a new series going out today called Greek Odyssey with Bethany Hughes. Could you tell me a little bit about the programme? Yes, yes, of course. So, I mean, (laughs) we're speaking right at the end of a pretty epic adventure uh, making this series. So, as the title suggests, I'm travelling through the Greek islands following the story of Odysseus and the tales of the Odyssey. And really, it's kind of three things. It's a love letter 
to be honest, to Greece and the Greek islands. I went when I was still a student and kind of slept on, you know, nighttime ferries and on, took, took <laughs> lifted, hitched lifts on fishing boats. And I've been going back ever since. So so it's a place I completely <laughs> adore. Obviously, uh, for me, it's very fertile hunting ground in terms of history and archaeology. And also, as, as, as you'll know, I, I adore the myths and the stories and both what they can tell us about the human condition, but also more importantly than that, sometimes where they give us tiny clues to the reality of life in the ancient and particularly the prehistoric world. I mean, and they are not history. They are absolutely not history, but sometimes they are history by accident. So you can find these little details in them, which then emerge in the archaeological record. So it's a mixture of all these things. It was, oh my goodness, we started in September. Uh, I, I popped back to the UK a couple of times, but we finished in March. So we do uh, really do travel through uh, the, the Aegean and the wider Mediterranean. Wow. I know, I know. And you, had, you, you have had a genuine odyssey as well creating this because you mentioned that the tail end of the editing process happened just as lockdown was beginning, didn't it? Well, that's right, yeah. So our final day of filming was in mid-March in Greece and on the final day, as we were exiting uh, some of the archaeological sites we're digging in, the notices were being put up saying that they and the other public sites in Greece were being closed due to COVID. So we were just a few hours ahead of kind of, you know, so we just got back in time, which which meant that we did have to indeed edit and produce and deliver the bulk of the series remotely in lockdown uh, with everybody being incredible I mean this sort of diligence and dedication of the team was just fantastic so very early on before there was an official lockdown in London um, you know we had our director was cycling through the sort of ghost town like Soho to start off the edit and then suddenly we were all we all you know we were all shut down in our homes and so this huge bulk of material had to be transferred uh, to people so that they could edit remotely and we were sort of tag teaming and people were managing small kids and we were you know editing and then watching late at night and then getting notes back kind of before dawn so the next team could pick up so but we, yeah so it wasn't it was a, a, a bit of a bit of an odyssey but you know my goodness it just brought home to me the, the reason why these ancient myths and stories matter because a lot of the things that we were talking about in the series before the COVID-19 crisis so uh, the fact that in life these unexpected dangers and challenges are suddenly thrown in your path that you need to rely on wit and wisdom and resilience to get through them but also really crucially on collaboration with others and the community of the wider world which is sort of what the Odyssey is about you know Odysseus only gets through a lot of his troubles either through through intense brain power or through um, the help of women and men around him so it suddenly became incredibly relevant really to a lot that people were were feeling as they were going through this crisis and yeah yeah, the fact that Odysseus is desperate to get home because home is where love is and since people have spent the last three months at home that that felt very of the moment as well Today we're going to talk about one aspect of your series that you focused on, which thankfully isn't something that happens today, which is virgin sacrifice. Yes, um, but before before we get on to the nitty gritty of it all, I wonder if you could just paint the scene. So just pretend I don't know anything, which I actually I, I don't. Yeah. Well, what's the world of ancient Greece like? I mean, geographically, politically, and what would people's daily lives be? 
have been like well what the the sort of period that i'm really focusing on you know it's to be honest my happy place is the bronze age uh, and then going into the iron age so we're talking around sort of um 1500 bce to around 1100 bce and then beyond that into the iron age up until around the 7th or 6th century bce so this is a time when it's a real kind of blueprint for civilization and and i think what's very very important is that uh, typically people have always thought that uh, Greek civilization kind of belonged to the West somehow. But this is a world that is centered around the Mediterranean. It's as Eastern as it is Western. There's a huge amount of trade and diplomatic contact and um, idea sharing as well as goods sharing right the way around that Mediterranean basin. So including the Eastern Mediterranean, what we now call Asia, so uh, what the Romans called Asia Minor, um, so so places like Turkey and uh, what is modern day Syria and Palestine and Israel, the Levant, and then across into North Africa. Um, So it's a very rich, extraordinary world. I just think it's one of the most exciting and heady times in the human experience because it's where people are really making a success of lives. Um, it's very stratified. You know, we shouldn't have rose-tinted spectacles. There are definitely, yeah. there's a king, a queen, nine times out of ten, aristocrats, kind of rich courtiers, and then the people around them who serve who serve that the upper echelon of society. A lot of slaves, there's a huge slave trade going. We hear about them in the Linear B tablets, these these kind of proto-Greek tablets that were set down and survived from the Bronze Age. So it's 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 a very uh, high-octane place, not a fair place at all, but one where we know people are imagining stories, they're creating exquisite, exquisite art, they're wanting to travel almost as an excuse to learn about other cultures and other ideas. And it's a very polyglot, polyethnic, polycultural world. So that's the Bronze Age world that I think then gives rise to the stories of the Trojan War. Uh, obviously, the famous epics that we're told are composed by Homer um, in, in either the uh, 7th or 8th century BCE. I mean, I think there's no doubt that what Homer is doing, if there is one person called Homer, is picking up on <laughs> All these other oral stories set down by these epic bards who would sit in in courtier in in palaces, uh, singing the tales of heroes um, and just just a general oral history. So these kind of rich tales, which are then passed down, which then. Uh, become the the epics, the the Iliad and the Odyssey. So it's a kind of interesting world. Women have some status and standing in this Bronze Age world. Again, yeah. um, uh, you know, you have to completely forget there has been this rather fanciful idea that it was the, a kind of matriarchy and women were in charge. Uh, I'm sh- absolutely certain that's not the case. But if you look at societies like Crete, both uh, Mycenaean Crete and Minoan Crete, uh, mm-hmm. you do see women there in charge of, for instance, the stores of grain. Um, and if you think about that, that is an incredibly uh, responsible and important job to have. So you you cannot have anything other than status if you are physically the keepers of the keys of the stores of grain. Um, yeah. And also the kind of keepers of the of of the gateway to the world of gods and spirits so there were obviously male priests but there were many female priestesses as well um, who were thought to have some kind of special access to the supernatural the spiritual world and if you think of that this is a world where 
you know, in, in classical Greek, there is no separate word for religion. Just the gods are everywhere and everything and around every corner and every breath of wind and every fruit that ripens on the tree. So to have a percentage of the species, 50% of the female of the species who are thought to have a kind of special relationship with the gods, that immediately uh, gives you potency and status. So so it's a very interesting time for me in terms of what, what women are doing. Of course, incredibly frustrating that we don't really have written records as such. We have to piece it together through archaeology and analysing the Linear B tablet. Um, and, and the yet-to-be uh, identified and decoded Linear A tablets from Minoan Crete, but I think we can pick up a lot of this, uh, a lot of what's going on from the the memories that end up as oral literature in stories like the Iliad and the Odyssey. And um, that's so fascinating. I'm interested to um, learn a little bit more about about this role of women because. Of course, if if you're elevating women into a position whereby they are seen to be almost supernatural or have a special link to the gods or link to nature, then that will come with its own risks as well. And I imagine, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, I imagine that might be why we see cases of sacrifice with women um, more more than we do with men. I mean, could you could you? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very shocking aspect of this Bronze Age world. Uh, very troubling that, uh, and, and something that people haven't really wanted to talk about before. That mm. it is um, that you know there is evidence of human sacrifice in times of crisis and extremists. So we think this isn't something which is happening regularly. It might in the earlier Bronze Age, it might have happened. It, it, it's possible that so some of those stories of Theseus and the Minotaur and the tribute of young men and young women being taken to Crete and delivered up to a kind of monster who lives in the middle of a labyrinth could possibly Mm. be remembering a regular ritual sacrifice of some kind. And and really fascinatingly, some of the dances of Greece, actually which are still done today, have their absolute parallels in Bronze Age um, dancing. And and again, there's a... uh, Yeah, I know, it's really... So, I mean, you know, that folk culture has such tenacity and and has endured so strongly. And and there's there's a really interesting uh, kind of thoughts that's circulating uh, with scholars that some of the dances might almost have been ways of actually, ironically, of choosing the best dancer, so the kind of fittest and most Mm. delicate and graceful human specimens to then be offered up in, in sacrifice so sort of you're literally dancing yourself t- to death you know by oh by, by performing I know so so th- that's a possibility for the earlier Bronze Age but what we are seeing in the Middle and Late Bronze Age are sacrifices of humans when there is some kind of natural disaster so you find it on Crete when there are earthquakes there's, there's an incredible ritual up in the mountains outside um, a place called the Cave of the Winds in Emospilia where it looks like uh, there's been some kind of geoseismic activity and a human sacrifice has just been committed and the priest is holding a a, a large bowl probably of, of human blood that's been drained from this young man who's had his uh, throat slashed and is lying lying down but actually it looks like there's then been further maybe an earthquake of some kind and that yeah. ceremony itself has been interrupted which which is why it's been preserved and so a priest has fallen down and as as has the blood bowl as well so we know it's happening in Crete but just only in 2007 
and it's all being analysed now. There is there's, uh, further evidence which we, we look at in this series in what was Kaidonia, now Harnia, in Crete, on the northern coast of, of Crete, where, again, there's been an earthquake. And we're talking yeah. about a date around sometime around 1300 to 1200 BC. Uh, you can see the terrible splits as a kind of palatial uh, complex. You can see these terrible, terrible cracks, sinister cracks in the ceilings and the walls. Mm. And a huge number of animals have been sacrificed, but so too has a young woman. Now, uh, it was really shocking for the archaeologists when they when they discovered this. And the interpretation seems to be that actually a young woman who's, she seems to be in very good condition. So it could possibly be that she's actually um, a real kind of premier young woman, maybe one of the royal household who's been given mm-hmm. up to the gods exactly as you say in a way because she is so special and and we've got to think of what that word the word sacrifice means to make something sacred so although it's impossible for us to get our head around this and it is obviously an abominable and a brutal thing there is some possibly some form of respect that's being paid to this girl oh, I see. so she so it's 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 sort of you know your prize your prize most beloved I was going to say possession, and that's sort of wrong to talk about humans as possession. But, but in a sense, you know, a, a young princess probably would have been the the possession of mm. the the king and the queen is being offered up uh, to to the gods to try to appease them. So it's very sobering. It's really disturbing to see this, but it tells you so much about society at the time um, and gives you a kind of window into their into their psyche and how they operated and negotiated and navigated the world around them. Just just going back to the actual archaeological evidence then, and sorry if this seems quite crass, but how do we know that she was sacrificed? Is the... It's really, yeah, it's really, so it's just her skull is there. She's there's been There's probably a single sword cut to the throat, oh, right. which has severed her head. And <sighs> yeah, and it's very obvious that the way that the cranium has been manipulated, it's almost replicating an earthquake of the kind of pulling apart of a, of the the bones in a way that would have replicated and the, the earth splitting open for the earthquake so and she's laid down with all the other sacrificial animals so so it's yeah no no it's it's, it's very clear that's what's going on i mean as i said it's all being analyzed right now as we speak so there's still kind of more discoveries to be had about this particular skull but of course if you think about the the stories of the Trojan War, in a sense, the whole Trojan War narrative starts and ends with the sacrifice of a young woman, of a young of a young princess in inverted commas. So Iphigenia, yeah. of course, is taken and sacrificed by her own father, by Agamemnon. Mm-hmm. The story goes that Agamemnon had um, upset Artemis, the, the great goddess of the hunt, by hunting and killing a deer in her sanctuary. And so the winds uh, fail so that they can't, they, the, the fleet can't say, to Troy and um, Agamemnon told the only thing that will uh, allow the winds to rise again is if he sacrifices his precious daughter so she's lured to the sacrificial spot with the promise of, of becoming betrothed to Achilles to the, to the great warrior hero Achilles mm-hmm. and, is, and is sacrificed in some versions of the story Artemis takes pity on her and whisks her off to the to the shores of the Black Sea where she becomes immortal and is a priestess of, of Artemis 
house and replaces a deer in her place, which actually, just as a sort of sidebar of information, we think is possibly remembering that time in real history where animal sacrifice replaced any form of human sacrifice. Okay. Uh, interestingly. But anyway, so that's the, you know, the terrible death of a tragic, heart-rending, when you read about it, death of Iphigenia at the beginning of the, of the Trojan War. There are many literary accounts and even more translations of Iphigenia's sacrifice. Writing at around 408 BC, Euripides dramatised the story. Iphigenia. And now you want to kill me. Oh, in the name of Pelops, of your father Atreus, of my mother, suffering here again as at my birth, do not let it happen. Agamemnon. Because Menelaus is my brother, they chose me to be their general. I wish they had saved the honour for someone else. And when the whole army had mustered here at Aulis, the wind died. Calm. We still cannot sail. There is only one hope of our going, according to Calchas the prophet. Iphigenia, my daughter, must be sacrificed to Artemis, the deity of this place. Then the wind will take us to Troy, and the city will fall to us. Iphigenia. If Artemis demands the offering of my body... I am a mortal. Who am I to oppose the goddess? It is not to be considered. I give my life to Greece. And again, right at the end, uh, the youngest daughter of Priam, the king of Troy, Polyxena, uh, who has interestingly also become entangled with Achilles. So Achilles, the, the, the warrior, has already killed um, a number of the members of her family, but he sort of falls for Polyxena. He confides in her the fact that he has this this weakness, this uh, weak spot, his his literally is Achilles heel um, and he's then killed afterwards and the story goes that either because uh, Polyxena feels so terrible about the fact that this this information about his weak spot has been released she commits suicide or that Achilles ghost comes back and says insists on her sacrifice on his tomb again so that the winds can then carry by this time the victorious fleet of Greeks back to the Greek mainland having sacked the besieged Troy so the fact that that vital narrative of the kind of war, in a sense, to begin all wars, the war, the war mm. that was the touchstone for, for so much of antiquity, for, for Greek um, culture, Roman culture and, and way beyond. The fact that that is bookended by the sacrificing of, a, of, a, of young girls, I think, tells us actually this is something that was um, originally present in society then was probably banned and didn't take place, but but held a, a hugely important place in people's collective and shared memory. Crikey. So mm. I think the, the lesson as well is if you're a, the daughter of a powerful man in ancient Greece, steer clear of Achilles. <laughs> yes. Just... <laughs> You're like, in any circumstance, dear, clear of Achilles, I think would be my advice to anybody. Yeah. You know, in, in myth, not a man to, um, not a man to muddle with. Um, that's so, so interesting. Shall we, shall we end on a positive note, though? Can you please tell me what your favourite part of filming your new series yes, was? Yes, Your favourite yes. place? Oh, favourite place. My goodness. How can I? Because we went to 13 islands and over 20 different historical sites. And, uh, you know, we had adventures by boat I, I really hard to say a favorite place I mean there were incredible moments I think 
kind of both at the beginning and the end of the series. So right at the beginning of the series, I was really lucky enough to be taken by an incredible underwater archaeologist to look at these late Roman shipwrecks, uh, which are, I know, uh, I mean, honestly, my heart is in my mouth just talking to you about wow. it. Uh, there are 58 shipwrecks on the seabed around there. It's very close to the island of Samos. And when he dived down, the remains, this is this was a, a kind of trading vessel that had gone all the way around the Mediterranean, the Black Sea, and mm. there are stacks of plates still perfectly stacked, like you oh buy in kind of Ikea today, just lying at the bottom of the sea. That I bet you was, wanted to grab them. Oh, that was, that was a truly uh, remarkable, privileged moment. But what happened is it was we, suddenly this um, wind and a sea storm whipped up and we were told that we had to evacuate, otherwise we'd be stuck on sort of just off this island for three days and we got completely drenched I mean honestly soaked I'm not exaggerating (laughs) absolutely soaked to the skin I was so soaked that I had to take all my clothes off and change into my spare clothes (laughs) and it was so windy my clothes were blown into the sea as an offering to Poseidon so so you know I never litter but I'm really sorry to say that somewhere somewhere in the bottom of the Aegean my Marks and Spencer's pants have been left as an offering to the god of the sea that's hilarious so funny well (laughs) Bethany it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and that's a a fantastic way to end our conversation all right well yeah slightly I mean talk about sublime (laughs) tragic to the to the totally totally ridiculous but yeah I know well I hope you enjoy the series Thank you. And um, I do. Uh, all listeners do tune in. Um, it's going to be a, a brilliant piece of escapism for everything that's going on right now. But thank you. Thank you. The scale and extent of human sacrifice during this time is something we'll probably never know. But what we can see is just how much of a hold the notion of female purity and sacrifice has had on art and literature through the centuries. From classical interpretations and Renaissance imaginings to modern incarnations in theatre, film and books. This